following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Welcome to Fathom Church. If I didn't get a chance to meet you, I'm Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're online with us, we're glad you're with us as well. Hey, would you please grab your Bibles if you brought them, and I hope you did, and let's open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible, there are hardback black Bibles under every chair that you can open up to 1 Samuel 13. Uh, If you're online with us, you can click that little Bible tab. If you've got a phone or a tablet, 1 Samuel 13. That's where we're gonna spend our time this morning. Uh, And as you're turning there, uh, Americans, Americans love an underdog story, right? Like this underdog story, uh, probably, I'm, I'm guessing it's because uh, we were kind of the underdogs and we broke away from the British. And I think it's kind of built into our historical narrative as a people that we like the underdog story. We love these things. So I asked some people their favorite underdog stories this week. And here's what I got. I got some answers. Uh, Rudy, you know Rudy? Yeah. Apparently, Samwise Gamgee used to play football. Uh, so that's, that's what Rudy is. Uh, uh, the second one I got was the Karate Kid, uh, which for our college students is the original Cobra Kai, okay? But the Karate Kid, uh, Wax On, Wax Off, Danielson, that's pretty good. Uh, the Rocky movies, except two, three, four, five, and the one where he's like 65 years old. <laughs> so really just the first one, okay? But Rocky, uh, that's pretty good. Sylvester Stallone. Uh, Remember the Titans? That one's, yeah, that's a... You can't make a joke about that one. That one's just too good, right? Uh, There was, of course, the Miracle U.S. hockey team movie that was about the 1980 Olympics hockey thing. Some people know that. Somebody actually had the audacity to say to me, you marrying Marcy. (laughs) Which hurt. That hurt, though I would fully agree with it, but still, like, that's just, that's not cool. Um, Today, in our text, in in 1 Samuel 13, we're going to find two instances of God's people being underdogs, kind of being in the position of weakness in the text. Uh, And we're also going to see the the, the two instances of this, they respond in two completely opposite ways. And so uh, I want to start by saying uh, every position of weakness that we find ourselves in, anytime we are in a position of weakness, we're kind of an underdog, whatever it might be, We have options as followers of Christ to respond in one of two ways. We can respond in faith or in fear. Faith or fear. Whenever you're positioned up against something and you're the underdog, you have the choice to be faithful or to be fearful. And, And I just think, man, so many of us, even Christians, we choose to respond to challenges with fear rather than faith. Fear is actually the ongoing pandemic that's, that's, that's around. I don't know if you are aware of this, but um, did you know that there are over 300 clinical phobias out there? Uh, f- clinical phobias, the American Psychiatric Association defines a phobia as something that causes us such stress that it interrupts normal life function. That's what a phobia is. And uh, there's 300 plus of these things. And there's some very bizarre ones. Just if you're, I mean, we know like arachnophobia and things. There are some really strange ones. I found some strange ones. Ecclesiophobia is the fear of church, which does not bode well for us, right? (laughs) An irrational fear that affects you. Uh, Coronophobia is a fear of dancing. 
which I have. Okay, it is called awkward at weddings syndrome. That's, that's how you know you have that one. Octophobia is the fear of the number eight, which I don't know what that means. Is that like a fear of stop signs? California roll all those things because you can't handle the eight? I don't know what it is. It's just a bizarre thing. Politicophobia is the fear or abnormal dislike of politicians. And is it really a phobia if we all have it? <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know. Um, I think that's just called normal, being normal, okay? Uh, Turophobia is the fear of cheese, which I'm not saying like this is like cheese makes my tummy feel bad. It's a fear of cheese, an abnormal fear of cheese, uh, which sounds terrible to me. That sounds awful to me. I can't even imagine it. And then, of course, felinophobia is the fear of cats. Okay? Fear of cats. And, yeah, thank you. Uh, and there are four others, uh, four other names for the fear of cats. So there are five phobias that are the fear of cats, which is warranted. The other ones are um, elurophobia, elurophobia, galeophobia, and gatophobia, which is, of course, the fear of cats in Mexico. So, so it's a... It's a, it's a thing. Our culture is ravaged by fear. Substance abuse, mental health, actually the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration reports a 27% increase in call to, calls to their crisis and helplines since 2019. 27% increase. Anxiety disorders across the board in the last two years are up 26%. From COVID to civil unrest to political division every, every two years, it seems. Even the midterms were all over the place, right? To potential and actual global wars. All of these things are feeding into stress and anxiety and fear. And we, even Christians, can respond to those positions of weakness, those moments with fear. But, but as followers of Christ, we actually have the option to respond with faith. We have the option to respond with faith, and we're going to see two examples of this in our text today. So um, like we do every week, let me give, a, this is a historical narrative book that we're in. So I always give us the context because you need to know where we are in the story. So let me talk about this real quick. First Samuel 13 in the book of First Samuel comes when Israel, God's people, the Israelites, are in the midst of a change of governance, they're in the middle of a change of how the, the nation would be ruled. For about 400 years, God's people, the Israelites, they have been ruled by judges. For 400 years, God has functioned as their king, and then he will raise up judges, men and women judges, who will at certain times and places deliver God's people from the hand of their enemies. That's how God's people have been governed. And then Samuel, the namesake of this book, uh, was actually Israel's greatest prophet and the final judge of Israel. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 8, which we covered a number of weeks ago, Israel demands a king. They demand God give them a king. They want a king. They're sick of these judges. They're over it. They want a king to rule them like all the other nations. And when making this demand, they are rejecting essentially God from being their king. They said, we want a real flesh and blood can wield a sword type of king. And Samuel on repeat warns them. 
He warns them repeatedly that this is disobeying God. This is rebellion against God. This is rejecting God as king. But then here are God's people's words to his warnings. I'll put this up on the screen. 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20 says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So this is the end of the period of the judges and the initiation of the monarchy, the monarchy over Israel, and a new character is introduced, Saul. Saul, son of Kish. Okay, Saul is the first king of Israel. And over the last few chapters, we followed his identification. If you remember like the little donkey story, that was a bizarre one, right? His private anointing, his public proclamation, his inauguration. And then last week, Samuel says, all right, I can step down from being judge over God's people because you've got a king now. Saul is king. And so Samuel steps aside. And that's where we pick up today. That's where we get into 1 Samuel chapter 13. Only seven verses to cover this week, okay? We covered 25 last week, so we're going to go just as long, okay? First Samuel chapter 13, please look at verse 1 with me. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash. Michmash sounds like a made-up place. It's not. Okay, just has a great name, Michmash. Uh, Saul was in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So the setup for our passage today is right here, and what we find out is that Saul, who is now the king, one of his first moves uh, as king over Israel, is to form a standing army. That's what he's doing here. Prior to the monarchy, the the Israelites looked to the judges to deliver them and kind of like this citizen militia that would show up anytime uh, a force would come against them in their times of crisis. But but Saul now is establishing this 3,000 person, 3,000 men uh, is what the text says, for Israel to have a standing army, to have a force, to actually have troops, okay? And his establishment of this this force of 3,000 Uh, is actually in line with what we just read in 1 Samuel 8, right? And part of being the king is that he's going to fight and go out to fight Israel's battles. And in order to do that effectively, he needs an army. So he raises his army, he calls 3,000. And now we are introduced to another new character that we haven't seen yet to this point, uh, a guy named Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's eldest son. He's the oldest son. And thus, remember now, this is a monarchy now. So the heir to the king is the prince. And when the king goes, the prince becomes king. So this is the heir to the kingdom. This is Jonathan. He's going to be, listen, very important in coming chapters. He's going to become very, very important. But what's more, besides just being this guy, Jonathan, apparently he must have some sort of militaristic tactics, some sort of strength around military and leadership because a third of this standing army is put under his leadership. Remember, 2,000 go with Saul, 1,000 go with Jonathan. So this army is formed, 2,000 with Jonathan, 1,000 with Jonathan, 2,000 with Saul. Now, 
on to verse three and the first instance of Israel being an underdog. Here we go. Verse three. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba and the Philistines heard of it. Now stop right there. I know it's mid-verse, but stop right there. Here's what we know about this instance. As soon as Jonathan gets his troops, he's got his thousand, okay? He makes a decisive attack on the Philistine military power at the city of Geba. Now it says, the text reads literally, defeated the garrison of the Philistines. The garrison of the Philistines. So a garrison by definition is a permanent military institution, installation. It's a permanent military camp. And thus, there were Philistine troops at this garrison. Now, the question that's been debated for centuries, for millennia, by the way, is how many troops were there? And the answer is, we don't know. Anybody who tells you they know is a liar, okay? We don't know. It would be pure conjecture. But what we do know is that a garrison is a is a permanent facility, and therefore there would be some sort of troop presence at this garrison. So what we're talking about here is a young prince. Jonathan is this prince leading a relatively new force, a new army, a thousand people against an established host in a permanent installation. And oh, by the way, the Philistines have pretty much been dominating Israel for the past number of decades. This is an underdog situation. Okay, we don't have to read too much into the text to see that they, Israel, is in the position of weakness, and yet Jonathan somehow takes the garrison, and it proves to be very effective militaristically because this is probably the incident that will initiate a war between Philistia and Israel that will last all throughout Saul's lifetime. This is probably that moment in this history. Now, I know this is a lot of history, okay? But stay with me here, okay? This is important stuff. We've talked about the Philistines uh, in this series already, and here's the thing I want to remind you of, okay? The Philistines from here on out are the number one scourge to God's people. They are the enemy. Enemy number one, the Philistines, okay? Goliath is a Philistine. You'll read this all through the life of Saul, the life of David, even into Solomon's life. That's finally when they kind of beat the the Philistines down completely. But we can look at the Philistines biblically uh, as something of a barometer. Israel's relationship in war between them and the Philistines is something of a barometer for how God's people are doing in their relationship with the Lord. All the scholars point this out in 1st and 2nd Samuel, that when Israel has the upper hand over the Philistines, it's a sign that God is pleased and they are walking faithfully with the Lord. But when Israel's defeated by the Philistines, the Bible portrays this as more than just a loss. It's a divine rebuke. So we'll see this as we journey in this book. But for today, Jonathan and this thousand people, thousand uh, soldiers are victorious. From their position of weakness, They respond with faith and and they defeat the Philistines. Okay, and that's true for us as well. In any moment where you find yourself in a position of weakness, you have the option to respond with faith. No matter how scary the foe may be, you have the option to respond with faith. We'll get more into that in a bit, but that's how Jonathan responds. Okay, now on to what happens next. Let's pick up with the rest of verse three here. So I know we stopped midway. 
Jonathan defeats the garrison midway through verse three. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said, or heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Okay. There's something we have to address just real quick here. It's not the main point today, but it's an important point. Who was it that defeated the garrison of the Philistines? Jonathan. Yeah. Who, who was it that caused Israel, as the text said, to become a stench to the Philistines? Started this great war. It's Jonathan. Okay. And yet who was it who got the credit throughout the land? Saul. Now that's not totally unusual for the king to receive credit for anything that anybody under him did. And yet, I think there's something that we're not reading too far into if we take this from here. If you're, if you're reading the ESV, which, you know, if you're reading one of those black Bibles in front of you, uh, what does the, he- look up a little bit, what does the heading say there? Saul fights the Philistines. That's what mine says, at least. I don't know what other translations say, but Saul fights the Philistines. Now, here's the truth. Saul didn't do anything. He did not fight anyone in this story. He may have taken the credit for it, but he certainly didn't lift his sword. And here, I don't think it's reaching too far to say we're beginning to see shadows of some character flaws in our brother Saul. We're, we're beginning to see this, okay? The, the, these character flaws are starting to rear their ugly head. They will become more and more apparent as the chapters progress. But first, Saul is taking credit. It said that Saul blew the horn and Saul made the pronouncement and all of Israel heard that it was, it was Saul who defeated uh, the Philistines. He's taking credit for something that he didn't accomplish. And listen, this is going to become a huge problem for this guy. Saul will let jealousy ravage him, especially when a man after God's own heart named David shows up and starts slaughtering the Philistines by the tens of thousands. Saul's not going to like that one bit. But even more so, I don't think it's reading too much into this moment to ask the question, why why didn't Saul take out the garrison of the Philistines? He had 2,000 dudes. Why didn't he go on the offensive? Why doesn't the king step out to fight for Israel? I mean, again, 1 Samuel 8, I'll put it up again, 1 Samuel 8. No, there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight. Does Jonathan's success here point to some lack or some deficiency in Saul? I think it does. Now we have the We have the gift of knowing the rest of the story. But just note, this might be a little bit of potential foreshadowing here. We're going to see later in this book that some of these things really start to grow in Saul's character. So Jonathan, even in light of being in a position of weakness, responds with faith in God and dominates the Philistine garrison. But Saul takes the credit. Okay, Uh, now... What are the Philistines going to do? Like, what's, what's, what's going to happen now that the Israelites have become a stench to them? Well, look at verse 5. 
And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in the multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Aven. Okay, this is an important verse. It's a really important verse. But there are some, some questions around the interpretation of the numbers here. So I know that many of you might be looking at the NIV as opposed to the ESV, but if you're looking at the NIV, depending, and depending on the translation really that you're reading, you might see 30,000 chariots like I just read, or sometimes this is interpreted as 3,000 chariots due to the fact that 30,000 chariots seems like far too many uh, considering the terrain and the fact that there are 6,000 horsemen and 6,000 horse ain't enough to pull 30,000 chariots, but maybe 3,000 would work so that there's two horse per chariot. There's a lot of debate in the books on this one. Scholarship doesn't quite know what to do with this, whether it's 30,000 or 3,000. Now listen, we can geek out on this and you should because the Bible's important, okay? You should know these little things. I think they're important, but here's, the, here's what I think we can take from this. It don't matter if there's 30,000 or 3,000. The text where we all agree on is the next line where it says, they were like sand. They were like sand on the seashore. Here's what we know. The Philistines are ticked off. That's what we know. Why? Because little baby Jonathan just took out their whole garrison. And now they're raising the multitude. They're bringing all their forces to bear on Israel. I mean, this is what we have here. Jonathan's domination of the Philistine garrison has proven unbelievably effective to stir up conflict with Israel's number one enemy. That's what we know. 3,000, 30,000, it don't matter. This is a huge force against this new army, this new force in Israel. And so so here's what I want to do. I want to pause for a second for a point of application. God will often put us in positions of weakness when he wants to strengthen us. He'll often put us in positions of weakness when he wants to strengthen us. Now, God never delights in in hurting us, in bringing pain into our lives, in raising, as it were, an army against us, But God wants us to trust him and he wants us to depend on him. And this is maybe one of the most important things that we can ever learn, that he is enough. Hey, there we go. That's what I like to hear. Anybody else scribbling today? Okay, good. Here, sometimes God will increase the size of the army against us so we have no other choice but to trust him. And it may not be a real army, a literal army, but there are armies that come against us all the time. And I just want you to think through the potential that God might be raising them up against you for your strengthening. You say, well, what do you mean by increasing the size of the army against us? What do you mean by that? Well, maybe it was the time that your spouse failed you, that you learned for the first time how much you could truly rely on your heavenly father. Maybe it's the time when you got laid off from that job that you finally learned that you could actually trust God to be your heavenly provider. Maybe it was the, the time that you, were, you found yourself all alone, by yourself. It felt like everybody had forsaken you and abandoned you in that moment that you learned that God was 
that friend who stuck closer than a brother. See, what I'm saying is, is God's sovereign purpose behind the hard things in your life might be to teach you to lean into him like you've never done before. I mean, this has been my journey. I don't know. I mean, I know some of your stories. This has been many of our journeys. My life story, my journey with Jesus has had so many of these armies coming against me moments. Early in my faith, I got saved at 16. So within the first three, four years of following Jesus, man, I just, I wrestled immensely with ongoing sin in my life. So much so that like I couldn't get a handle on it. And I thought maybe, maybe I didn't do the whole pray the prayer thing, salvation thing right. Like maybe I didn't say it right. Maybe I didn't solve the Rubik's Cube. Maybe I, maybe I didn't believe enough or something. And I started questioning my faith because I could not put these sins to death in my life. I went off to college pretty close, uh, shortly thereafter, and it wasn't two years into college that my parents sat me down and told me they were getting divorced. After, you know, 20-some years of marriage, they were going to be done. And it was interesting because it was very shortly before that that I felt the call into ministry. Like I felt called into ministry, and then mom and dad say, we're getting divorced. And I remember distinctly thinking, God, why would you do this right now? I'm, I'm giving my life in service over to you, to your church, to your mission. This isn't supposed to happen. You're not supposed to unravel things after I sacrifice for you. Early in my marriage, uh, I, I found myself unemployed, wondering how I was going to provide for my bride. And they ain't cheap. Another was when my mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer. One of the biggest burdens for my family, many of you know, was that my wife has had ongoing health issues that we haven't been able to nail down. And then even if you, maybe you are newer and you don't know this, but uh, three years ago I had a spiritual burnout and I almost walked away from ministry entirely. Just thought, God's done with me. This is not what he's called me. I must have misread somewhere. But it's been in these times where God has weakened me, like the times of loss or pain or discouragement or, listen, depression and anxiety and panic attacks, feeling like my life was caving in around me. It's been in those moments that God has forced me to lean on him in ways that I never have before. It's been times like that where he's filled me in a way that I just don't know that I've experienced in the good times. And sometimes I even like long for those experiences again, not the heartache, but the filling, the power, the encouragement, the, the knowing God in a way in those valleys. Weakness forces you to lean into God. And you'll never know he's all you need until you see that he's all you have. To be used by God means you're going to come to this point where you realize how absolutely powerless you are and you fall in hope at his feet. So sometimes God will put us in positions of weakness to get us to this point. Don't believe me? Here's some quotes from smarter guys than me, okay? A.W. Tozer says it like this. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has first hurt him very deeply. That stings a little bit. 
but I think it might be true. Sometimes in order to get you to lean into his power, he has to bring an army against you. Here's the other thought here. I want you to rethink what God might be doing in your life. Maybe you feel like you've got some sort of army coming against you. It doesn't matter if it's big or small. Maybe you feel like you've got something that's mounting up, a weakness, a position of weakness, an underdog thing going on. But I want you to, to be open to the essential lesson that God might be trying to show you in it. I mean, church, this is my prayer for us. This is my prayer for me, for, for all of us here at the church, that God would either bless us or break us, whatever it takes for us to fully depend on him. One more quote, Hudson Taylor puts it like this. God wants you to have something far better than riches and gold, and that is helpless dependence upon him. So how's Israel going to respond in this moment? How's Israel going to respond to 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horses? I mean, horses? 3,000 dudes against 6,000 horses? You ever been near a horse? They're crazy. Well, let's look back. Verses six and seven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, yes, they are. For the people were hard pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Why there's that much detail, I don't know, but that they're hiding. Verse seven, and some Hebrews crossed the fords from uh, of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, and Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So if Jonathan's response to a position of weakness with this Philistine garrison is with faith, then Israel responds with the opposite here. They respond with fear. They hide, right? They revert towards cowardice in this moment. And, and listen, it is a shame because the Israelites had just faced a major scary obstacle in the same category, the same genre that they are now facing. And the Lord had just delivered it, delivered them through it. But now the face of a larger and scarier obstacle in the same category. And instead of putting their faith in the Lord to deliver them in the way that he already had, instead of crying out to the Lord for help, they hide in the caves and in the cisterns, and in the tombs, and behind rocks, and every imaginable place that they can. The Israelites choose fear. Now, there's a common misunderstanding or misconception around here, um, and that's that the opposite of having faith is having doubt. I feel like I work on this all the time with you guys and I'm okay with it because I believe it's one of my predispositions as well. But, but the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. The opposite of faith is fear, biblically. Like, you see, if you have doubts, if you have doubts and you're a Christ follower, you're in great company. All through the Bible, we got doubters. We got a doubter in the 12. He's got a nickname that rhymes with that, right? We got doubters all, all over the place. You would make a great follower of Jesus if you have doubts. 
Because that's all we see in the text. Uh, Here's an example. In the Gospels, uh, there's a story of Jesus and his disciples in a boat. This is just one example. I can give you tons of them. Uh, They're in the boat. They're out on the Sea of Galilee, and a massive storm hits, a squall, right? You know the story? The the storm begins to ravage the boat, and a number of Jesus' guys, a number of his disciples, are occupational fishermen, right? They work and live on boats, and when the guys who make a living and live on boats start freaking out on the boat, it's like real deal, right? Right? It's like, did anybody pay attention to the safety announcement? Where's the flotation devices here? And then, I mean, they're freaking out. It's like a Titanic moment here, okay? Overboard, they're looking for the life rafts. So the disciples run to Jesus, and, uh, and Jesus, the text says, was, his head was on a cushion, and he was napping during the storm. And this will blow your mind. Jesus brought a pillow with him. The text makes it clear that there was a cushion that he had brought and he's asleep on it. How does the son of, it's because the son of God knows the storm is coming, by the way. He's got the cushion, he's asleep, and they wake him up, which I always like to say, don't ever wake up the son of God, okay? <laughs> Just let the Messiah sleep. But uh, they wake him up, Jesus gets up, he tells the winds, he, he, it says he rebukes the winds, he rebukes the seas, and that the seas obey him immediately. The storm goes from squall to glassy and calm like that. It's not a a slow calming. It's an instantaneous, the wind and the seas obey this man. And then he doesn't turn to his disciples and say, why did you doubt? Mark 4, he says this. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? See, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's fear. And what fear causes in people is paralysis. Fear will cause you to just kind of seize up and do nothing. And, and listen, that's just so many of us. Me included, that's so many of us prone to this. This is, I mean, there's so many Christians who have not stepped out in faith and in obedience to what God has for you in whatever area you want to pick because you're afraid. That's why a bunch of Christians don't give their first and their best. I'm not talking just cash, but like they they don't give of their first and their best in obedience to God's call. You're not generous with your time and your talent, your abilities, your treasure, because you're afraid of what's going to happen if you don't have those things anymore. That's fear. That's why a bunch of Christians never serve, either in the church or outside of the church. They just kind of hoard themselves for themselves because maybe it's because there's, you know, you're afraid of failing and falling on your face in front of somebody else in that thing. Or maybe you're afraid of like missing out on something else that better that might show up. You don't want to like overcommit. Just it's like a spiritual FOMO thing you've got going on. That's why a bunch of Christians are stuck in that job. You're miserable. I'm not saying you don't have seasons of hard jobs. I mean, it's work, right? It's not play. It's work. But maybe you've got a vision for something else and you're just paralyzed to move forward. You're so afraid of failing that, that you just stay put even though you hate it. The opposite of faith is fear, and fear causes paralysis. So what we have here 
are two responses to underdog moments, to positions of weakness, right? Two different hardships show up and the response for one is faith and for the other is fear. And so Christian, I just wanna say this to you today. The greatest danger that you're ever gonna face in this life is not an army of the Philistines or whatever the contemporary binary is for you in that way. Listen, the greatest danger that you will ever face is not an army that's raised against you. The greatest danger that you'll ever face is losing a position of weakness in your life. Losing this posture of weakness. You see, the great danger for the Christian is not sickness. It's not poverty. It's not losing your job. It's not even losing a spouse or a child, a loved one. The greatest danger is for the Christian to get proud, to get self-sufficient, to lose a sense of dependence on God. So it's somewhat apropos that we open our presence today and kind of belatedly celebrate the birthday of the church three weeks ago because today is, this week actually, is the three-year anniversary of um, the burnout that I talked about earlier in the sermon, where I just almost, I mean, I literally almost packed it up and gave up on ministry. Um, Because we started Fathom seven years ago, and for the first four years, things really were, it felt like they were going really great. I mean, things were, I mean, growing and we, people were coming. The church was moving. There was like this hype and some momentum. It just felt like, man, we've, we've really figured this thing out. We've got like the, the you know, the, we figured out the, the gospel code for church planting. We got this thing nailed. But in that, I began personally to have this sense in my heart that it was me. And that I had to be the one who keep this thing moving forward. Like I needed to have all the answers for what's next. And I needed to preach the best sermons that anybody had heard. And I needed to be Pastor Chris, right? The golden boy of church planting. That's what I needed to be. But there was a lot of eyes in those thoughts. And what was happening is that I was actually responding to my deep insecurities with fear. And that fear manifested as pride. And it's interesting that you can be so afraid of something and so prideful at the same time. But, but God in his great kindness to me raised an army against me. And he disciplined me and he sat me down in this burnout and I started realizing that I had nothing except for him. The army came against me and I realized that all of those things that I had put all my stock in were actually burning away and I was left with nothing but him. And he sat me down and then through the kindness and love of, of many people, some of those, some of you are in the room today, the Lord, the Lord taught me how gracious he actually is, how forgiving he actually is, how powerful he actually is when someone is humble before him. And so now today, when those insecurities start showing up in my heart, and listen, they still do, but when those things show up as they are prone to, I'm more equipped to respond in faith than in fear. 
Because God in his kindness weakened me, broke me apart, but showed me so many things in that. See, here's the truth. More often than not, Christians will pass the tests of adversity, but they will more often than not fail the tests of prosperity. I think you take that one to the bank. Because when you're facing the tests of adversity, you've got nowhere else to cling. There's no illusions. You're desperate for him. You feel like every single moment, every single day, you're not going to make it without his sustaining power. And it is so hard to replicate that in prosperity. When you get strong, when you begin to think that you've got it, you've got all that you need, that's when things begin to fall apart. Tell me I'm a liar. Tell me I'm lying. Tell me that's not been your experience. Never forget where you were when God found you. Never forget the grace that he shows to you. Never forget how much you owe to him, how much you owe to his grace. So is God raising an army against you today? I know many of your stories. I know some of you have armies against you today. Is God putting you in a position of weakness right now? Does it feel like there's 300,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and you're not sure how you're, and you're tempted to hide behind a rock or in a cistern or in a cave? I would just encourage you, ask you to consider Maybe he's trying to teach you something. Maybe he's trying to strengthen you. Maybe he's right on the cusp of breaking into that thing and delivering you from your enemy. Whatever the situation is, whatever, however big it feels, this is what he'll say to you. I'll be your security. I'll be your ever faithful companion. I'll be your justification. I'll be your righteousness. I'll be your glory, the lifter of your head. That's David quoting David, I'll be enough for you. Church, don't despise the positions of weakness because God might just be strengthening you, but I want to encourage you, respond in faith, not in fear. Scribble that down. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you today praise your name. We lift you high. We thank you for an obscure little passage again that we come to in 1 Samuel 13. But Lord, we, we just pray right now as we've reflected on this text and its meaning. We, we want to reflect on the armies that we have coming against us. The positions of weakness that we find ourselves in. Because each one of us has those. Each one of us, whether it feels like there's 300,000 or 3,000 or just three, it feels like that weakness is death. It feels like that weakness is, is, a, is a death sentence for us. And yet, Lord, you might be doing this in order to strengthen us, in order to use us, in order to grow us in dependence on you. Holy Spirit, you are the true preacher here at Fathom Church. I I pray you preach to our hearts right now. You reveal in us places that we've gone astray. 
You reveal in us the, the caves that we're hiding in, the cisterns that we're prone to, to, to duck into, those rocks that we've erected around us to kind of protect us from the things that you've called us to. And I pray you break those things today. Break them in me, break them in us. Call us to the strength of the Lord. To quote the Apostle Paul, I delight in my weakness, for when I am weak, then you are strong. And let us lean into your strength for our good and for your glory. So Lord, take this information, take this head knowledge, move it south to transformation, move it into our hearts. Let us dwell on it deeply and be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.